Welcome everyone to another great episode of Black Equity Podcast. We are in the middle of uh, Black History Month. We're having really great conversations this month with Black founders, Black entrepreneurs, and we're learning about their journey. We're learning about what they've been through. How is everybody's month going so far? How is everybody's new year going so far? Is it everything that you thought it would be? I know we were talking about leaving 2020 and going into 2021. Is Has it gotten better? Has Does it have anything to do with time? What is currently going on in your business operations, right? In order for us to really get into business operations and how to be successful and make sure we don't let this year fly by us, we got to start having these conversations with those who are positioned and are aligned to help us reach our goals. Okay. So on today's episode, we're going to get into that. We're going to get into building a system, uh, building the right operations and getting everything you need in order for your business to go to another level. Okay. If this episode touches you in any way, make sure that you leave a review Uh, Make sure you subscribe to this episode, Uh, share your thoughts on all social media platforms. We would love to hear from you here at Black Equity Network. Okay, so without further ado, let's jump into this episode and let's learn how a system is exactly what you need. episode of Black Equity Podcast, and I'm excited about this conversation. We're continuing our Black Founder Series, where we are speaking uh, with the different Black founders that uh, have reached out to us and wanted to have a conversation about what they're working on, uh, the different things, the different services that they're providing, and what they're seeing from their perspective uh, within the Black community and within our culture. And so joining me on the line today, Uh, is Andrina Sawyer. Uh, Welcome to Black Equity Podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you, DJ, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. You're very welcome. Uh, For those who don't know, just tell us a little bit about uh, your company and how you got how you got started. Sure. So I'm the founder and president of Park Consulting, uh, P-E-R-K. And what we do is we work with nonprofits and small businesses uh, providing business development and capacity building support. And I actually kind of accidentally ran into consulting about 10 years ago when I was uh, pursuing another career track. And I realized that I was much more interested in nonprofit development, but I was met with the challenge of thinking that there wasn't enough money in it. Um, Most of the nonprofits that were working in my community were quickly running out of money, had high turnover when it came to staff. And so initially I I didn't want to do it. I kind of did it as a hobby, but I quickly realized that this was something that could be a viable career for me. So that was 10 years ago. 
Okay, so you uh, are in this consulting space, working with small businesses. And did I hear you correctly, focusing on nonprofits? Am I hearing yeah. that correctly? Yep, that's that's correct. So we actually started off, I actually started off working with only nonprofits. Okay. Um, but then um, within about two years of operation, some for-profits started reaching out to us and there was an overlap in what they needed and what the nonprofit sector needed. So we started branching out and, and supporting small businesses as well. All right, so now we stumbled on some things. So this is what I love about conversations. Yeah. Conversations, when they happen organically, you can just find the thread of what you're looking for. So there is an overlap between nonprofits and for-profits that you found there to be an intersection of needs. What are some of those overlaps that you found? Well, the, the biggest one is funding, right? Um, <laughs> the, the, the big difference is nonprofits oftentimes rely on external sources to be funded and for-profits are depending internally. But whether you're a for-profit or a nonprofit, if there's no money, you really can't get very far. So that's, that's definitely a commonality. Another big commonality is infrastructure. And so a lot of organizations, whether it's nonprofit or for-profit, the founder starts off with a lot of zeal and they just want to do what they love and they want to do what they're good at. And oftentimes good business development gets left behind. And so they may have to come back within a year or two to come back and really build that infrastructure, make sure that it's solid, make sure that it's sustainable. And again, that's whether you're a for-profit or a nonprofit, but there's an overlap there as well. Okay, so there's something else that I'm curious about because I've heard this mentioned in conversations, this, this need for business development. I guess the simple answer is it's developing the business, but what exactly besides that, what is business development if an organization keeps hearing, hey, you need to work on your business development? What exactly does that mean, mean and what kind of services uh, does your company provide to help uh, bring that in? Yeah, I mean, business, business development, to be completely honest with you, is jargon. And so if you're not in the consulting space, it's left open for interpretation. But the simplest definition I can give is think of it as systems. So similar to how the body works and we have a system within us that is made up of organs and is made up of vessels and all sorts of things, I'm not a science person. The business is the same way. And so there's this internal system that makes it all run. Um, you know, maybe later I can tell you about our signature kind of approach to business development and strategic planning. But if those systems are not in place, you will probably hear someone says you need to work on your business development. Or if you have some systems in place, but some of the other critical ones are not, you'll hear people say that. So let me let me drill down and make sure I'm understanding this. Sure. Are systems and infrastructure the same thing or are they two different worlds? Similar okay. in that systems make infrastructure work. Mm. So you can't have infrastructure without solid systems. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So they're and kind of so, a supporting force behind it. And so when you're coming, when a, when a company reaches out to you, how often is it the fact that they need systems uh, in order to uh, go to the next level? How often are you seeing system as, as the, the number one diagnosis of what a company needs? Almost always. Uh, and that's not a bad thing because even businesses that have been in operations for decades are always working on their business development. And part of, part of the reason why is because systems are not just internal. 
So systems respond to the external. So they respond to customer reception. They um, respond to trends, to the climate. And so you could have a great system. And if the market has to pivot, like we saw in 2020 with COVID, you may have to change and respond to that. And it had nothing to do with how well you were doing, but because something externally changed. So almost always, and it, it's not a bad thing. I love that. And so I didn't realize this. So the nonprofits have systems as well. It, it, although it's a nonprofit, it, 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 it still has to have a way of flowing. Is that correct? Absolutely. Any any entity. And and if I may, I, I can share with you with the, the systems, how they're categorized. Sure, sure. Um, so so every entity, whether it's a nonprofit or for-profit, is made up of what I call four walls. And every system that you can develop for your business falls into these four categories. And the first is the financial system of the organization, right? The capacity systems the customer systems, and then the operations. So everything that you need to make a business works falls within one of those categories. And so whether you're a for-profit or nonprofit, finance is critical. The operations, when you step away as a, as a founder, does it still work? Your capacity, like, are you growing too fast? Are you scaling too fast? Are your people equipped? No matter what level you're at. And then customer, are you speaking the right language to, to your target? And so those are the four things. So you may find that a nonprofit or for-profit is doing really well in three out of the four, but if that fourth one is out of sync, then it's, it's a threat. It's a threat to the organization. So all, all entities, for-profits or nonprofits need to be in sync in all four of those areas. I think this brings up a really great conversation. When I'm having conversations with entrepreneurs, they're all there. It seems like most of them are talking about the financial system. They're talking about the amount of money. It's, it's a money talk, money, money, money. But I don't hear enough about, I've, I've rarely heard anyone talk about a capacity system. If we could, let's talk about maybe the two that aren't mentioned as much, capacity system and operations. I think people talk about customers and they talk about the funding or the financial side, but can we drill down a little bit more into the capacity and operations? Sure, and, and you're absolutely right. Funding or finance is probably the most obvious one because it's the one we feel the most, right? Like, especially if you bootstrap your way up, like you feel every penny literally leaving your pocket. Um, but I'll give you an example of how they're synced. So let's say for us as a consulting firm, we say we want to double our revenue, right? That seems like it's a financial goal. And so the automatic next kind of train of thought is, well, we need to increase our customer load. So we need to get more customers in order to double our revenue. So then that becomes a customer issue where we need to work on our systems for customer. But it's a big no-no, or I wouldn't advise one of my customers to go in that direction if their capacity is limited to their existing customer base. So if we make the mistake of doubling our customers and we still only have three consultants that are working with us, the value, the quality of the service that we provide is going to decline. People will complain, right? And we run the risk of burnout, right? And actually going backwards <laughs> from the original goal that we set. So what appeared to be a financial goal or financial issue, which is where a lot of entrepreneurs get stuck, might actually be a capacity issue because you need to increase capacity in, in order to make more money 
if that's the route that you're going in, or it might be a customer issue. So it's not always as it seems when it comes to money, because there are other systems that are influencing your ability to make more money. I like what you're talking about. Cause I was looking this up the other day, this idea of got to be careful growing too fast, too soon. Yeah. A lot of people want to be number one. They want to go straight to, towards the top. But like you're saying with the capacity situation, if you grow too fast, yeah, it, it looks good because you have all the different people coming to you, customer increases, maybe even your money increases for a certain, uh, 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 the immediate future but eventually if you haven't necessarily put the systems in place the correct systems in place your company could fall to the wayside because you don't have the capacity to support the amount of uh influx that you have coming in absolutely and and you wanted to talk about capacity capacity is probably the most forgotten uh, overlooked quadrant when it comes to this the system that we're talking about um, when you think about customer service, it would appear that that's a customer issue, but it's actually a capacity issue. So whenever you go on Google and you see people complaining about how service was poor, because people are probably not trained well, or there's an internal culture that doesn't support good customer service. So when I say capacity, let me back up. So the, the definition for those who are not familiar with that word, um, a more common phrase is human resources. Um, but even bigger than that, it's about um, the, the, the software that you might use, how automated your processes are when it comes to making sure that you have, you're equipped to serve um, externally to serve your customers. So I like to define it as what's within the organization that makes it work outside. Um, so when it comes to capacity, you have to think about are people positioned? Are they qualified? Do they know what they're doing? Do they represent the company well? Um, have we done the best that we could so that each person that works within our organization is an effective ambassador to bring in more money, to help make sure that the operations run smoothly and that our customers get a good experience every time they come in contact with those people. So it's overlooked, but it's probably the quadrant that touches every other quadrant. I love that. Now, earlier you mentioned your signature approach. Did we already kind of touch on that yet? Or was there more to the signature approach? I wasn't sure. Yeah, yeah. So, so that those four categories are kind of the anchor. That's the core of okay. how we approach consulting. We have a, a six-phase uh, process that starts with the needs assessment. And okay. so we really dig deep. <laughs> so when someone comes to us and they say, oh, our social media strategy isn't working, well, it's not just about you know branding and beautiful colors and, and nice language, but it's about a culture, right? That's congruent to the messaging and the needs of the customers. Um, and so we really dig deep. That's, um, that's phase one is the needs assessment. And based on the results of the needs assessment, then we uh, determine what next steps need to be taken. So we don't take a blanket approach to consulting. You know, we don't try to just, hey, come here and pay us you know, this heavy bill <laughs> per hour for our services, but we really want our people to feel like we're a friend that's walking with them through the journey. A lot of our people, when they come to us, they're solopreneurs. And so really they have us and maybe one or two other people or organizations that are helping them through the process. And our goal is to make sure you feel like your capacity is, is, is bolstered just um, based on your partnership or your work with us. Are there any particular type of sectors 
that are uh, consistently reaching out to you? Do you work with a particular sector? Or are you open to all sectors? We're open to all. Um, and so with the nonprofits, we get a lot of uh, youth development and education-based organizations, which is, is nice. Um, in the for-profit, we do get some health and wellness, and then we get tech companies as well. But we've worked, you know, in the course of 10 years, we've probably touched more industries than I can name right now. Okay. Uh, so is there a particular industry that, because you, you kind of have an inside track here. Is there a particular industry that you've noticed uh, that is impacting the Black community um, where, hey, if we focus more energy in this particular area, especially with business development, the right systems, we really could dominate this space if we only knew that, hey, this is the area we need to be paying attention to. Yeah, and it's funny that you asked that because I, I do have personal thoughts about that. And that's, this is probably the one industry or sector that we haven't done a lot of work with, and that's real estate. Um, so ownership, um, I'm, a, I'm a big proponent of people owning things. I think there's a lack of, um, a lack of access to information when it comes to real estate, but people that we've encountered who are affluent, you know, self-made affluent, they always say that the key to their kind of success in business has been real estate and investment. And so I think real estate is definitely one thing, but then also overall financial education. So any organization that does financial organizations, I am quick to work with and I'm eager to work with because I think that that's another area that if Black people were to be more involved in that area, I think we could change our economic position. Um, I think uh, lastly, in the nonprofit space, and I'm kind of biased about this, but youth development, because what I'm finding is that by the time people get to us in their 20s and their 30s and 40s, we're almost playing catch up a lot of times. So I've been in rooms where we were underrepresented. I'm talking about four black people out of like 50 people for a business seminar. So there's a lack of representation, which affects our confidence. There's a lack of access to resource, which leads to you know higher uh, business failure rates. So I think if we were to tackle that youth development space, where we're funneling resources to people as teenagers, as preteens, then we are better positioned when it's time to be businesswomen, businessmen, and women as adults to actually contribute, to actually compete in a way where we are not always playing catch up. So those now, three spaces. I love that. So with these youth development um, uh, nonprofits, they're providing these resources that are additional to whatever they have going on at their school. Uh, this is additional resources that the youth are able to participate in. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, I mean, the beauty of youth development is it's such a broad space, right? But I'll give you another example. I work with an organization now that is uh, based in Southeast DC. And what they do, their signature offering is after school programming. Um, but instead of just general after school programming, one of the things that I propose to them is what if we did semester based courses that focus on a specific life skill? Right. So maybe for a semester, all we did was college readiness and career prep. Right. So for students who are in Southeast D.C. and anybody who knows the background or the context of Southeast is that you're working with kind of un with underserved communities. 
So you're working with kids whose parents might not be able to pay for uh, participation in sports leagues. They're not able to pay for mentoring and all those other things. And so as an organization, if all we did for three months with these kids who are not getting these resources otherwise is how to take SAT, how to be ready for a career, how to be ready for a trade school, we're almost helping them to, to, to even out the playing field. And once that's over, let's focus on something else. Let's talk about general life skills like financial management, tax preparation, budgeting. You may come from a home where you might not have seen that model. And so intensively for three months, people are talking to you about that at an age appropriate space, in a place where you're comfortable, you're not intimidated because you're underrepresented. These things I believe make a difference. And so if we can get people at 13, you know, teenagers at 13, 14, 15, by the time they're 22 and they're talking about starting a business, they're not playing catch up on some of the more foundational skills. I love that. Um, as you're talking, I'm just picturing, um, I'm wondering what your thoughts are with these PPP loans and then all these different corporations saying, oh, we're gonna give money to this foundation. And oh, we love black people now and uh, you know, black is in and black lives matter. Yeah. How have you seen uh, as the culture is shifting, or at least they are saying it's shifting, uh, how do you how do you see this impacting some of the businesses that maybe you're consulting with, or just the business landscape overall? Yeah, you know, again, kind of my personal bias here is that I think what we were offered were quick fixes, um, and I, I've seen people get in trouble. So overall, in 2020, about 40 percent of businesses went out of business. And so if you were eligible for a PPP and you were just looking again for the financial fix, but you didn't pivot, like strategically pivot, pivot your marketing, then you got a band-aid in the form of a $10,000 or $20,000 loan that you probably will have to pay back, but you, you're not surviving. You know what I mean? Or you're barely surviving, but if COVID goes on, let's say to the middle of this year or until the third quarter, you still have the underlying issue of your infrastructure and your systems aren't good. So what I would have loved to see is Black business owners running for the PPP, but then also running for the supports that SPORE and SBA and those types of organizations are also providing so that we deal with the fact that a lot of us did not know how to pivot. A lot of business owners that we work with didn't even know what pivoting looked like, oh, you know, in the sense of business. And, you know, for those who may not be familiar, pivoting is, is a shift in your positioning, is a shift in how you're offering services. So if you were primarily offline based, pivoting looked like figuring out how do we transition our services to online services, right? How do we charge based on these changes? How do we minimize or decrease our expenses? But a lot of people didn't know how to do that. And so the Band-Aid was the PPP loan. Um, some people that I know were actually decided to go for the EIDL grant, which was a much better fix because at least you didn't have to pay that. Um, but the PPP, I thought, was a quick fix that helped some people if they, they had you know, good business acumen long term. But um, for those who were kind of in desperation mode, um, I was, I'm nervous about it. When you, uh, when you are looking at uh, these different companies that you're working with, 
Um, what, what is that process like? I know you said uh, they do the needs assessment and then from there you see how long or you see uh, what you wanna uh, do with that company. How long is the typical time that you're working with a company to get them from point A to point Z based off the assessment? Yeah, at minimum three months, but on average about six months. Um, a lot of our clients end up staying with us for years. Um, and usually the interruption with services is probably because of budget um, needs to be renewed or they have to apply for additional grant funding. But on average, about six months to see some real change. Um, not not the topical stuff. Um, because, you know, I'm a Black woman, naturally, I think the people that gravitate toward us are other Black women. Um, and so some of the statistics with, with Black women-owned businesses are so scary. Um, like, for example, Black women in business are making about $66,000 a year compared to $250,000 for white women. So when they come to us and they say, well, my issue is marketing. I have to dig deep and say, well, no, it's not just marketing because we're making a quarter of what other people are making. And so as we really you know, start to uncover these layers, that could take weeks or possibly months. So on average, about six months. So you're leading me down a road that I am very curious about. Okay. So I'm not sure how deep you want to go down this road, but if you want to keep going, we can go. Okay. What, are, what are we uncovering when we look at that huge wage gap or profits gap, you know, since it's a business or revenue gap between uh, a black woman run business and a white woman run business, is it simply the network of the two or is it uh, the customers in which they serve? Is, what, is, what have you found to be an overarching uh, consistent reason why there is such a huge gap between the two? Yeah. Um, who? That's a. That's a. I don't know if I want to do this. <laughs> oh, well, take it wherever you want to. Listen. Um, okay. So it's split into two things, right? So there are two lanes that are happening right now with okay. black women in business. So in the one lane, you have some of the the soft skill, cultural, nuanced things, right? So like I said, being in a room where you're one of very few. And how it affects your, your posture and your confidence and your ability to contribute to the conversation. So you have women who won't even sit at the table because they're not comfortable with their voice, right, as Black women. And I have some theories about that, but that's one lane. Fair. Fair. But then you have another lane where it's like the technical business development stuff. Culturally, as African people, I'm West African, right, and as African Americans, I almost think it's in us to make and create, right? But unfortunately, making and create does not make a good business. So on the technical side, we have to learn what business looks like in this context. In Africa, if you made a good, you know, a good stew or you made good hand baskets, people just knocked on your door and they came and bought and there you have a business. Here, it does not work like that. You have to legitimize the business. If you're a nonprofit, you have to make sure that your board of directors, right, they're professional, they're qualified, they're willing to work. Structurally, it has to be good. Then you have other technical elements like marketing, fundraising, revenue uh, development or, or service development. And all of those things can, one, be intimidating, two, they can be expensive to access 
if you're in a community and in a culture where it's even accessible if you have money. Um, so those are some other challenges, but I think we have two lanes and depending on what your background is, some people can bypass the, the cultural phase because they grew up in a community where they saw themselves represented well and they can jump right into the technical stuff. But for some people who don't come from that background, you have to deal with that hurdle first before you can even get to the technical lane. So I, I said a lot, but, but no, no, those are my thoughts. <laughs> okay, and I'm not gonna go too much further down the road, okay. but I heard you say something earlier in the conversation that I think connects back here. You said a lot of people that come to uh, work with you are solopreneurs, yeah. right? I also think that could be um, a factor here because as a creator, one thing I've learned is you're supposed to create and then give it away. And what I mean by give it away, because people can take that the wrong way. I don't mean create and give your ideas away so somebody else can profit off of it. I mean, you create, and then like you were saying earlier, you build systems and you put people in place to take that idea and do something with it outside of your hand. So then you can go and co go create again, go create more. The problem I have found, and this isn't about black women or white women or black, it's just about people. What I've seen is people will create, but they don't want to give it away. And so they have this great, awesome thing. And then they're trying to manage the finances around it, do this around it, do that around it, do all these different things around it. But they're supposed to really be going to create 10 more things, but they're so stuck on this one thing, they won't let it go. Have you ever seen that in, in what, what, what I'm saying? Is there any truth to what I'm saying? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I find that even more so for people who are creatives um, because it's, it's their baby. But I'm not a creative, but I'm an entrepreneur. And so it's important to me that what I put out is an accurate representation of who I am. And I think that's part of the challenge, um, which takes us back to those four quadrants with capacity. If you struggle with something like that, then you need to build capacity even more than you focus on the finances so that other people can take care of the administrative, operational, and business development needs of the business while you lock yourself in your closet and work and create. But I found that to be a, a huge issue um, for us. And then when you add layers like competition or the threat of competition, right? Of if I give it away, then somebody else is going to copy it or do it better or they're going to steal it then it just, it creates this tension that makes it almost like paralyzing for the entrepreneur. But I've, I've definitely seen that. How, how important are strategic partnerships um, when it comes to business? Is that something that you come up across often where people are saying, you know what, I need to partner with this other company over here, or I need to work with that company over there because they're doing something that I'm weak at. And that could actually get me to the next level by doing some type of joint venture or some type of partnership? Yeah, they're so important. I mean, when I mentioned capacity, I probably should have talked about that being a fix for capacity okay. issue uh, because strategic partnership, they give you the benefit of building out, like building your capacity without some of the, the negatives like having to pay people, right? Or having it affect your bottom line. A strategic partnership for a solopreneur is literally your lifeline. Um, because it's a way for you to gain more exposure, partner with them. If they're doing something well and they have access to a part of the market that you don't, 
by virtue of the partnership, you now have access to it. And then you can serve more people. Um, the more organizations you work with, the better. In the nonprofit space, I've literally seen it be the saving grace for a nonprofit where they had good intentions, but they were too small and they wanted to go after a major grant. We're talking maybe six digits. Um, but because they did not have the capacity to justify getting that kind of money, they were eliminated. But as soon as they partnered with a bigger organization, then all of a sudden kind of legitimized their work a little bit more. Um, and the other organization may not actually be doing anything in actuality, but that strategic partnership being documented and being understood help the organization, you know, gain access to more funding. So they're really, we don't talk about that enough. I think entrepreneurship is inherently competitive, especially in this part of the world, um, you know, capitalistic in nature. Um, but I think <laughs> if more people did it, I think the, the, the failure rates would not be as high. That's an interesting concept of having a nonprofit partner with another organization in order to attract grants and attract the funding. I, I, I guess I thought of it, but I never really processed it until now that that's how a lot of them are strategically positioning themselves to get those specific type of grants because of their affiliations. Oh, absolutely. Um, and this is at any stage because there are some organizations that I've worked with that had been doing good work, but they were not legitimate yet. So they may not have had the 501c3 status. Um, and so another nonprofit that's in existence could serve as a fiscal sponsor. And so right from the beginning, you have this partnership where one is helping the other. And then you have programmatic partners where, you know, we do similar work and we can only serve, you know, 20 kids or, you know, very few kids. But because you do the same work, if we put our forces together, now we can double or even triple the amount of kids that we serve within this geographic area. Then you have other types of partnerships that are, you know, referral based. If you're a nonprofit that works with um let's say um, ex-offenders, right? And you provide service up until this point of their, um, of their, their turnaround. Um, after they've come out of, of prison or jail, then we can then help them with uh, career, or we can help them with uh, college, or we can help them with something else. Um, but there are so many types of partnerships that people can entertain for greater impact. I love this. I really love the, the wisdom that you're providing uh, for us. So, Andrina, how can people, if they want to work with you, organizations, nonprofits, for-profits, what's the process of working with your company and getting in, to me, getting in flow, getting, uh, getting in uh, synergy uh, with the right system so then they can attract uh, more revenue or more funding? Yeah, so we're, we're social. And so if uh, anybody, if you're on uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, um, you can find us at perk, P-E-R-K underscore consulting. Um, we also have our website, uh, perkconsulting.net, not .com. Always sends people to the wrong area, but .net. And then um, our general inbox, which is info at perkconsulting.net. Um, and regardless of where you connect with us, we offer a free 30-minute consultation so if anybody's thinking, you know, this is kind of urgent for me in 2021, I need to position myself better, you know, connect with us, send us a DM um, or visit our website and schedule it right there on the website. Thank you so much for that. I have one uh, last question or wherever this goes, let's take it. <laughs> take okay. it <laughs> I'm uh, nervous. You, mentioned, 
you mentioned earlier about uh, you're West African or from West Africa, right? Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a little bit more about, did you grow up there or is that is that where your lineage is? Could you just tell us a little bit more about uh, that background? Sure, so I, I was born there. Um, I lived there until I was nine and my family was actually forced to uh, leave because of a civil war. So Sierra Leone had this decade long civil war where there was an attempted coup against the government. And I'm from Freetown, which is the capital. So the war actually started out on the outskirts. Um, and then when it made its way into Freetown, luckily my family was able to get out. And so I've been in the US since I was nine years old. Wow, so, okay. Because for me, there's a jump there. There's a little bit of a jump. Okay. So you're in West Africa, and then you said you end up in the United States. There's a huge body of water that, <laughs> so like, how, how do you get to the ship? And how does that, I mean, how do you get to the United States? We swam. You got to do what you got to do. Come on no, now. <laughs> <laughs> no, so um, my mom actually worked for KLM. She was an airline stewardess at the okay. time. Um, and so <laughs> it, <laughs> I'm telling all my family's business, but we got here, okay? We, okay. We, all right, cool. We got okay. here. Was there, I'm not sure if you were old enough to catch it, was there any type of culture shock being in the United States? And if there was, can you talk about that a little bit? Because I think that's important for Black equity to understand that there's a different perception depending on where black equity resides. And mm -hmm. so you're in West Africa and you have one uh, way of viewing the world and then you come to the United States and there's another way of viewing the world. Can you kind of touch on that a little bit before we head out? Yeah, I mean, definitely there's a culture shock. And it's it's funny because even now I feel, I still feel like I experience culture shocks in different ways because I, I, I have this bicultural experience, right? Where at home and I'm around family, I live one life as a continental African, as a Sierra Leonean. But then the rest of the time, I'm Black American, I'm African American to the rest of the world. And so there are some times where I have to jump from one world to the other and I still feel like, oh yeah, we don't do that here. But as a kid, I mean, the culture shock is in everything. It's in the way people talk to each other. It's in the dynamics between adults and children. It's the the focus and the emphasis on education as the gateway to a better life um it's the accent and how people respond to the accent or i remember you know being in the fourth grade and a kid telling me that i stunk and when i went home and i cried and i realized that it's because i smelled like the foods that my mom was cooking and she's not cooking spaghetti for dinner you know she's cooking some native stuff and so you know, the culture shock was something that I had to go through and then assimilate um, in, in many, many ways. And then eventually you get old enough, you know, for me, I went to college and I realized, wait a minute, I've been fighting to assimilate when all this time I should have been proud about this. Um, and so now it's having to do a reverse. I mean, the culture shock is, is everywhere. It's the streets, it's the architecture of the buildings. It's, it's literally... Um, even though I was nine, I don't remember everything, but I do remember being kind of stunned about this new way of life. Thank you for sharing. I think that's so important for people that are listening, just to understand the journey yeah. of what, where Black equity can take you. 
Uh, so we'll we'll leave uh, with one last thing. What what uh, advice do you give to entrepreneurs uh, who may be in a situation where they know they need your services? They know that they want to go to another level with their company. What uh, final thoughts, words of wisdom can you provide to them uh, in case they're on the fence of reaching out and, and working with someone like you? Yeah, don't, don't, don't be afraid. I mean, whatever you don't ask for is an automatic no. And I, I'm not saying we'll do this for, for everyone, but we've been in situations where someone reached out and they were you know, very candid about where they were and we offered them pro bono support. You know, and I've been on the receiving end where I looked at someone and I asked them, hey, could you mentor me? Even though I was so scared and was surprised that they were able to mentor me, even if they couldn't provide consulting services. Um, be hungry and let the hunger trump the, the fear. Um, so if you have this great idea or if you've been at it for a while and you're not seeing results, take matters into your own hands. Ask. You know, ask questions, ask for help. Um, even solopreneurs don't really work alone. <laughs> um, so take advantage, especially if you're a person of color, a Black person, take advantage of kind of our communal nature, like the way we look out for each other, like never, never be afraid to ask. Um, and utilize free things. Um, I remember when I started, I used to compartmentalize my time. Right, so every hour of the day that was a working hour for me was color coded. And there were some hours that were specifically blocked for professional development. But if I couldn't afford to go to a, a workshop or you know some kind of event, I would just watch YouTube, a YouTube video dedicated to that topic for an hour, you know, or read or whatever, or just listen. But take responsibility for your education um, in your industry and, and be hungry, work for it. Thank you so much. And they can find you at perkconsulting.net. Is that correct? Yes. Awesome. That's correct. Thank, thank you so much uh, for coming on, sharing your story with us. You do have an open in, invitation. If you want to come back and talk about what you're working on, any new initiatives with your company, we would love to speak with you in the future. Absolutely. This was a great conversation. And I really uh, um, appreciate the tone that you set. Um, for making sure this was a conversation and I will take you up on that. Thank you so much. I'll talk to you again soon. Okay. How did you enjoy that episode? Okay. How did you enjoy it? Leave a uh, review leave a rating over on your given uh, platform that you're listening to your podcast. Let us know what you think. Send us an email over at blackequitynetwork at gmail.com if today's guest truly inspired you to go to another level of your business. We'd love to hear from you. If you're looking for collaborations with today's guest or anyone in the future, make sure you email us as well at blackequitynetwork at gmail. Com. I want to thank you all for stopping by today on Black Equity, and we have another episode coming to you very shortly.